Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Employee Number 00001 and is based upon the scripture readings in the lectionary for Sunday, September 18th. In the business world of startup companies, employees who are hired first typically reap the greatest profits often in the form of stock options that skyrocket in value when the company goes public. People hired last, on the other hand, earn much less. This business model spelled very good news for Mark McDonald. As Microsoft's first employee, Mark wears badge number 00001. 32 years after Bill Gates and Paul Allen started the company in 1973, for the fiscal year ending June 2004, Microsoft had revenues of over $36 billion and employed more than 55,000 people in 85 countries and regions. Such are the ways of the world, and more power to Mark and the fortunate few like him. But in the Gospel for this week, Jesus tells a parable a sort of case study to remind us that the kingdom he inaugurated is very different than the business models of most startups. As he so often did, his punchline shocked his listeners with a radical reversal that subverted conventional wisdom. If we listen carefully today, it should shock us too. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, a foreman hired laborers early in the morning then successively throughout the day at the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hours. A twelve-hour day of manual labor with, quote, the burden of the work and the heat of the day, end quote, is a long day. That evening, the foreman settled accounts, paying those who had worked a meager one hour the same as those who had worked twelve hours. Just imagine if Microsoft hired you this afternoon as employee number 55,001 and after the interview informed you that your salary would be the same as Mark McDonald's, the very first employee, or the same as Bill Gates's, the world's richest person with a net worth of $40 billion. You might be thrilled at this turn of events, but Mark McDonald wouldn't be, nor the shareholders. Nor were the laborers who had worked 12 hours. The parable says, quote, they grumbled against the landowner, end quote. Jesus responded that in God's upside-down kingdom, quote, the last will be first and the first will be last, end quote. Matthew 20, 16. Since he had just made this exact point two chapters earlier in Matthew 19:30 we can be sure he is reinforcing a point that is near and dear to his own heart. His point is not one about profit margins or minimum wage laws, although if he lived today I think he might have a trenchant parable or two about executive comp compensation. Rather, his point is about the lavish generosity of God's grace in contrast to the niggardly scorekeeping that characterizes so many human relationships. He cut to the quick when he responded to the grumblers, quote, Are you envious because I am generous? End quote, Matthew 20, 15. 
The Jesus way, in other words, is a world of grace, not merit. Status reversal instead of status reverence. Undeserved generosity rather than pay for services rendered. The Old Testament reading for this week provides a remarkably apt illustration of Jesus's parable. When God had compassion on the pagan Ninevites, Jonah complained bitterly. In Jonah 4.2, we read, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God's prophetic call had come to Jonah, telling him to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. But he refused. He fled some 750 miles in the opposite direction. If you look at a map, Nineveh was east of Palestine, whereas Tarshish was west, probably in southern Spain. It's easy to criticize another person's disobedience, even a flagrant disobedience like that of Jonas, until we know or until we experience their own situation. Conversely, we easily forgive our own lapses. Consider the enormity and difficulty of what Yahweh had asked Jonah to do. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's traditional enemy and eventual conqueror. With a population of perhaps 120,000 people, some classical accounts say it was the largest city in the world in its day. The text tells us that its pagan sinfulness was legendary. So was its cruelty. In his book, The Judgment of Jonah, for example, Jacques Ellul observes, quote, they were the people who scorched their enemies alive to decorate their walls and pyramids with their skins, end quote. Yahweh asked Jonah to go to this city and preach repentance. It was like asking a French person to go to Berlin to preach repentance in 1942. The task felt impossible, and Jonah fled. But Jonah was not just fleeing an unpleasant calling. He was fleeing, quote, from the Lord, end quote, Jonah 1.3, a fact which he freely confessed to the soldiers on board the ship he had hopped. He then descended into a suicidal death wish, the first of three such death wishes in the very short book. Remarkably enough, and here is a prophetic word of grace for us today, God did not desert Jonah to his disobedience or give him up to his own poor choices. Instead, Jonah 1.7 tells us that the Lord provided. The provision was a fish that swallowed, saved, and then vomited Jonah back on shore. Sometimes God's gracious provision does not even wait for us to turn around. He even takes a suicidal death wish like Jonah's and turns it into an occasion of grace and provision. So Jonah was saved. God's prophetic word then came a second time to Jonah, and this time he obeyed. He traveled to Nineveh and preached to Israel's pagan conquerors. It took three days, and then the unthinkable happened. Nineveh, famed for cruelty and wickedness, believed the message and repented. The king proclaimed a national day of civic repentance, 
Nineveh, we read in the text, despite its wickedness, cruelty, and enemy status, was a city, quote, important to God, end quote, Jonah 3.3. A city for which God had great compassion, a city that attracted his tender concern. Just as Jonah was not left to his own disobedience, God did not desert a pagan enemy city like Nineveh. Still, Jonah complained openly about God's lavish love toward a sworn enemy. His disobedience to God's call was one thing, perhaps understandable due to the magnitude and improbability of the task, but there is something very dark in Jonah's second failure. Why do we sometimes prefer misfortune for others, even divine judgment, rather than wish people God's shalom? We know that in some sure and certain way, God loves all people equally. But the parable of the workers in the vineyard that demotes the first to last and elevates the last to first Along with Jonah, who complained about God's tender love for Israel's bitter enemy Nineveh, remind us that God somehow has a special love for the least, for those whom we normally exclude, reject, and perhaps even hate. The geography of divine grace that embraces Nineveh and the economy of God's love that pays a full day's wage for one hour of work confound our puny and parsimonious human metrics that all too often complain about instead of celebrate divine generosity. Here are two questions for further reflection. Might we compare New Orleans, devastated by Hurricane Katrina, or Baghdad, to Israel's enemy Nineveh as, quote, cities important to God, end quote, as we read in Jonah 3, verse 3? Or secondly, have you ever regretted God's favor to an undeserving person, like the workers hired first, or like Jonah? My book note for September 18th is a book entitled on Bullshit by Harry G. Frankfurt, Princeton University Press, 2005, 67 pages. Bullshit, writes Harry Frankfurt, is, quote, one of the most salient features of our culture, end quote. When you consider the worlds of political spin, professional sports as entertainment, advertising, television, technology, the legitimation and even glorification of war in the name of patriotism, film, finance, and, to be sure, religion, it would be hard to disagree with Frankfurt. Further, let us admit with him that, quote, each of us contributes his share, end quote. In his tiny book, which you could easily read in one sitting, Frankfurt proposes to develop what he calls a theoretical understanding of this corrosive phenomenon. 
But for a person of his considerable talent as Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Princeton, Frankfurt misses a golden opportunity to enlighten us. His trajectory is simple. First, he considers a 1985 book by Max Black entitled The Prevalence of Humbug, showing how and where he differs with Black's definition of a similar concept. Next, he reflects upon a single incident in the life of Ludwig Wittgenstein to show that indifference to how things really are is the essence of bullshit. Next, he examines the semantic range of cognates such as bull session and shooting the bull from the Oxford English Dictionary. After a quick pass at a treatise by St. Augustine called On Lying, Frankfurt suggests reasons why we find so much bullshit in our culture. People are often tempted or sometimes constrained to speak about things of which they are ignorant. Intellectuals, for example, often feel the need to have an opinion about everything. Further, and perhaps even more pernicious, there is a deep skepticism in our society, observes Frankfurt, which denies that we can have a reliable knowledge of objective reality. This makes the epistemological default what he calls sincerity rather than knowledge. And given our fallen human natures, sincerity, he suggests, is just another form of bullshit. Although I might add, this does not stop him from a sincere dedication in the front of his book. I read this book because it enjoyed its 15 minutes of fame on the New York Times bestseller list. But in the end, I couldn't shake the feeling that the book was little more than a marketing ploy the combination of a cute title about a legitimate phenomenon in a prestigious university press. A man of Frankfurt's erudition might have written it over a weekend, if not in a single day. His florid prose epitomizes turgid academic jargon, such as this gem from page 8. Quote, It is a further question whether there are any features essential to humbug or to lying that are not dependent upon the intentions and beliefs of the person responsible for the humbug or the lie, or whether it is, on the contrary, possible for any utterance whatsoever to be given that the speaker is in a certain state of mind, a vehicle of humbug or of a lie." End quote. In the end, ironically, Frankfurt has served up a fine specimen of the phenomenon he sought to explain. My film review for September 18th is of a delightful film entitled ABC Africa. Written, directed, and edited by the Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiarostami, this documentary portrays the plight of Uganda's two million children who have been orphaned by the ravages of civil war, life under the psychopathic despot Idi Amin, and AIDS. Kirarostami made the film at the request of the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development. If you have been to Africa, the sights and sounds are very familiar. Piles of smoldering garbage, orange clay landscape, rutted roads, rusted corrugated tin roofs, bicycles, the ubiquitous rubber flip-flop sandals, and a weary yet resilient, elegant, and remarkably joyful people. 
In the film's most powerful sequence, a nurse wraps a dead child in a dirty blanket, packs him in half of a cardboard box ripped open for the purpose, and then loads the corpse onto the back of a bicycle. In particular, Kiara Rostami highlights the work of USO's Ugandan's women's efforts to save children, an all-volunteer organization of women who give themselves to care for the orphans and to train women in small business skills. The film has almost no narrative and would have been even more powerful if it had. Yet still, the images speak for themselves. The title, ABC Africa, refers to a t-shirt worn by a small child featured in the film who was adopted by a young Austrian couple. Finally, for poetry on September 18th, we have posted the poem Man by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. My God, I heard this day that none doth build a stately habitation, but he that means to dwell therein, what house more stately hath there been, or can be, than is man, to whose creation all things are in decay. For man is everything, and more. He is a tree, yet bears more fruit, a beast, yet is or should be more, Reason and speech we only bring. Parrots may thank us, if they are not mute, they go upon the score. Man is all symmetry, full of proportions, one limb to another, and all to all the world besides, each part may call the furthest brother. For head with foot hath private amity, and both with moons and tides. Nothing hath got so far, but man hath caught and kept it as his prey. His eyes dismount the highest star, he is in little all the sphere. Herbs gladly cure our flesh, because that they find their acquaintance there. For us the winds do blow, the earth doth rest, heaven move, and fountains flow. Nothing we see but means our good, as our delight for as our treasure. The whole is either our cupboard of food or cabinet of pleasure. The stars have us to bed. Night draws the curtain which the sun withdraws. Music and light attend our head. All things unto our flesh are kind in their descent and being to our mind and their ascent and cause. Each thing is full of duty. Waters united are our navigation, distinguished our habitation. Below our drink, above our meat, both are our cleanliness. Hath one such beauty? And how are all things neat? More servants wait on man than he'll take notice of. In every path he treads down that which he doth befriend him. When sickness makes him pale and wan, O oh, mighty love, man is one world, and hath another to attend him. Since then, my God, thou hast so brave a palace built, O oh, dwell in it, that it may dwell with thee at last. Till then, afford us so much wit, that, as the world serves us, 
we may serve thee in both thy servants be. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 18th. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.